welcome to the second episode of In Biolog. I'm your host, Parker Condit, CEO of Motobio. Today, we're excited to have Christina King, a licensed cognitive behavioral therapist and therapeutic coach, joining us to talk about mental health and its impact on our lives. Christina grew up in Philadelphia, but now lives in the Roaring Fork Valley in Colorado, where she operates her private practice. In addition to her work as a therapeutic coach, she's the founder of Aspen Strong, which is actually how we first met, runs leadership workshops, consults for businesses and individuals, and is a keynote speaker. During our conversation, we'll be exploring how our daily actions can lead to emotional gains or drains, the social determinants of mental health, and the role that technology can play in supporting our mental well-being. Christina will be sharing her insights on self-care techniques that can help support mental health, as well as why prioritizing mental health is so crucial. We're grateful to have Christina with us to shed light on this topic. So whether you're looking to take better care of your own mental health or you want to learn how to support someone else, this episode is for you. So without further ado, let's dive into our conversation with Christina King and explore the many ways we can prioritize mental health in our lives. Well, Christina, welcome. I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, I'm so glad to hang out with you today. I think the I think the easiest place to start knowing that we're going to be talking about uh, mindset today and maybe learning how to shift your mindset um, would probably be getting a little bit of an understanding of your background as a therapist and sort of your shift to a, a therapeutic coach um, and kind of what that means to you. And then also getting an introduction to kind of how like feelings, thoughts, and behaviors all interact with each other, just so we have some background on sort of the lens in which this, through which this conversation is going to occur. So I guess maybe start with uh, like why, why you've made this shift to being a therapeutic coach, and then we can kind of just go from there. Yeah, that sounds good. I, you know, I started, um, I went to school and did, had no idea what I was supposed to do. And, you know, in my undergrads, it was like, I think I was almost finished my degree when I freaked out and my sister was an interior designer and my dad was a contractor and I was like, oh my God, I should have been a architect, you know? And then I realized like, I love psycho- my psychology classes. I don't exactly know what I'm doing, but we're going to like finish here. And then I don't know if you even know, but I traveled a little bit and finally decided like I wanted to get into being um, a clinical therapist. Um, so I took a lot of time to do that and I got into, um, I was accepted into a few programs, but took the program at Westchester University of Pennsylvania and it was based in cognitive behavioral therapy. We did learn a lot of other information, um, but that was the main focus. And um, through my education and my internship, I worked in community mental health and if If you don't really understand what community mental health is, you know, we have a lot of community mental health centers in uh, Colorado. Mind Springs Health is a big uh, statewide community mental health center. There's a lot of community mental health centers, not necessarily statewide, but in other states, um, you you should be able to find them attached to like your public health department um, in every single community. And it really is helping. the larger community address their mental health needs. And so I worked in what was called an acute partial uh, program where people from the psychiatric facility would come into my program for 10 days and stabilize. They would come every single day for six hours through group therapy and individual therapy, and then would leave um, after that 10 day program and go into a two day program or 
a five day a week, but it was two hours and um, that would become flexible until they got into outpatient care with a therapist, which is something that's a little bit normal to the larger public of like just seeing a therapist once a week or every other week and that support. And so that's kind of the groundwork of my experience. And I really developed good clinical acuum. I worked with patients who suffered from schizophrenia to um, major addiction disorders, to um, eating disorders, to personality dysfunction um, or disorders. Um, and, um, you know, Asperger's, uh, major depressive disorders, bipolar disorders. And I really got to see um, and experience mental illness. And so I appreciated the work that I did in group therapy and individual therapy. I had always saw a vision to work in private practice. Perhaps some of that had to do with my father having his own business. Um, and I think that, you know, I, uh, just owning my own business and having my own practice was the long-term goal. And uh, eventually I made it there. Uh, I always wanted to move back to Aspen, Colorado. And so that's where I started my practice. And over the years, having worked in that community mental health center, having worked for family resource programs over the years, um, understanding how we can get lost in the minutia, like to address mental illness, it's really hard pathway to figure out where to start, where to end. Um, I think, and as you know, you were on my board, I started Aspen Strong, which really was um, kind of the heart of what I took out of working in community mental health, of being able to find those connections along the way to support people who are really struggling. Um, and I, I, I take that back, not people who are really struggling, just to support anybody who wants to address their mental health, like at any level, whether that's something like a mentorship for, program for teenagers all the way to a crisis center to like help you navigate what that system looks like. It's really difficult in any community. And so as I did that and taking my experience from community mental health, I just began to see, you know, the difference of staying in this medical model of always looking at the lens through the medical model and the diagnoses and seeing just a different pathway of kind of more coaching. I think the empowerment, the Center for the Empowerment Dynamic is um, a really good example of looking at we can see ourselves as a victim or we can see ourselves as a creator. And instead of kind of looking at somebody when they sit in the office and say, oh, well, you have this diagnosis and this is our treatment, I'm really focused on what are their goals and what are the obstacles and how can I help to shift their mindset into knowing, into creating hope. And hope is three things, goals, pathways, and agency. Um, so that's kind of the, the process of getting to this place of being a therapeutic coach. And the cognitive behavioral piece really fits in line with that. CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is this idea that how I view myself, my world, and my future predicts how I think, feel, and behave. And so if my thinking, my feeling, and my behaving is not working for me, then our work is reflecting on how I view myself, my world, and my future. And taking those tools to shift that mindset from looking at myself as a victim, per se, and learning how to look at myself as a creator, which then leads into my narrative and my story and how I respond or how I react with people in the world. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for going through all that. There's there's a lot in there. We're going to kind of circle back to various points. Um, but I'm curious, where did you travel? 
when you said you were traveling a little bit after school? Well, I jumped right on a trip to Europe for three weeks. Mm. And my best friend at the time, I mean, he, like, I, we could still call him a really good friend of mine, but Sean, him and I joined this Kentucky tour in Europe, which could probably be a hot mess, but I want to say that that was probably the most incredible trip for everybody involved. Um, even the person who was running the trip had given her two weeks notice in because I just think she was tired of like traveling with, I don't know, just different groups. And then she resigned her resignation after in the middle of our uh, of our three week trip. And we went everywhere from England to Switzerland to France to um, Italy to Greece to Belgium to Amsterdam. Um, and it was quick. It was a quick tour, but it was really a good it was just excellent to kind of get little bits and pieces. Um, so then I met some, there was a bunch of all of these on our trip and they, after this, I moved to Colorado for a year and the Aussies reached out to me and said, meet us in Fiji. And so I went to Fiji and Samoa and then I went to Australia for a good four months. Um, yeah. So that was, that was my, and it was in Australia where I was like, I need to get back to my life. I need to stop being like a travel nomad. Uh, I'm too I, I'm too much of an anxious person. <laughs> yeah, that's fun though. But like, those are such formative experiences. And it is funny that like being in, I'm guessing in Australia, probably a very scenic, very beautiful place, like an ideal vacation place. That's when you kind of come to the realization, be like, I kind of want to get back to like my life. Um, yeah. It's funny when that, those realizations come. That happened to me when I was in Argentina. Like my last few days down there, I was like, I was just working like a maniac. I'm like, I, yeah, I should just go back. Like, I'm just, I'm ready. I know. And it's like testimony too. Like I work with so many parents and kids um, and the parents are just nervous about their kids not being motivated. And I'm like, let them, you know, with boundaries and structure, you know, let them go on their own. And at some point it is literally going to click inside of them that like, oh, I need to figure this out for myself. <laughs> and it happens. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so since you started your practice, uh, have you sort of adopted or sort of blended in any any other like therapeutic models? Because you said uh, your your program was based in CBT. So that, I'm sure that's like a strong basis. But are there other like modalities that you sort of blend in and, and meld into your practice now? Yeah, I think family systems theory in general was always um, a piece of the picture of, you know, the the family dynamics um, has always intrigued me. And so I've, I've molded that into it. And then um, I, I worked with a client who had multiple personality disorder in community mental health, which, you know, is very rare. And I learned a system at that point didn't necessarily have the name. Um, but in 2012 or 13, they formalized a treatment or a, a theory, I guess you want to call um, called internal family systems work. And so for a really long time, it, it's kind of like parts work of like looking at yourself in different parts and being able to figure out like who's the leader and how we hold hands. And that was always brought into my work. I just, now there's a name for it. So um, that's really interesting. I um, I love the empowerment dynamic work. And, um, and then there's just not modalities per se, but the work of Brene Brown in shame and vulnerability, the work of the Gottman Institute in relationships and all types of relationships, and the work of Kristin Neff in compassion. I really, um, I really had no idea what compassion was 
until a few years ago. Um, I didn't really understand what empathy was. Um, and, and you might be surprised because, okay, doesn't a therapist go to school to, you know, to empathize? And that is definitely not my reason for going, getting into this field, um, which I think is important to like note for a second. Like I am a science brain. Like I love puzzles. I, I think that's why I challenged myself in this idea that I maybe should have been an architect at some point, but I love puzzles. I loved Legos. I love seeing how things interconnect and work together. And so I just nerd out on the psychology and the science of it. Um, and so uh, yeah, I didn't necessarily grow up in the most empathetic household. Um, love my parents, but I do think they they would maybe agree with that. And so I think my idea of empathy was like, being a cheer, like being a, an advocate for my client. And I think a few years ago, um, with the work of Aspen Strong, I, and some of the things that we did, I really understood what empathy and compassion was. And now today, I think that compassion truly is the key to all resilience. And so that's like just a key component of the work that I use. Yeah. And I, uh, I'm glad you shared that because I, I think it's very helpful to to hear that from somebody like you in your profession, understand that like you've kind of worked with this stuff and you studied it and, you know, it can still take years if that's naturally like not what you grew up with being a very compassionate or being in a very compassionate family or empathetic family um, that, you know, even being around it for so long to understand it is very different. Like uh, in the theory is very different from like understanding it at a meaningful, like heartfelt level. Um, so I, hopefully that's helpful to other people out there who are like, yeah, I kind of understand this stuff. Like when I read about it and on paper and in theory, but it's difficult to put into practice in a very meaningful way. So, uh, well, and I think you make such a great point, Barker, because I, that's part of my own personal journey. And, you know, I, I hope most therapists are in therapy, but you know, I, <laughs> I think logically I could really break down the understanding of why I do X, Y, and Z and why that's not working. And I naturally adapted or adopted rather, cog you know, cognitive behavioral therapies per se when I struggled as a teenager and yet I had no idea what CBT was. And so I think it was natural to me to check the thought, thought process, to check the behavior, to to make interventions. I could break down you know, a theoretical understanding of why someone had such and such diagnoses and come up with a treatment plan. And I could do that for myself as well. I knew all the right things to do. And yet I still necessarily wasn't feeling, you know, my best, that I was in the best place that I could be. And I think it wasn't until I worked on um, compassion and I think tools like internal family systems, and I will kind of narrow it down as like, Logically, I could understand it. Emotionally, my body was not understanding it fully. And so the work that I had done more recently is being able to transfer that knowledge and that intuition into my emotional experience. Um, and that, for me, has been the most rewarding um, part of my journey. So I think that leads nicely into something that you touched on earlier, which was the idea of uh, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Can you kind of give like the diagram of this is usually helpful. Uh, maybe I'll in the editing process, I'll like do an overlay. Uh, but can you sort of describe like, because these are basically three, three levers that can be pulled and they all affect each other. So can you kind of go through like what that diagram would be um, in a really rough sense? And then we'll get into more concrete examples as we go. 
Yeah, sure. If you do, if you can post like notes after this, I can send you a, a quick CBT video. It's it's pretty great. So it's um si- simple and easy. Um, if you think of like three circles in um um like they're not over. I, I I usually think of it like in a triangle, and like the arrows right. yeah, point yeah, to yeah. each other. Yeah, so the top of the triangle, and don't have to be the top of the triangle, but the top of the triangle is like your thought process or like your thought process is directly reflected of how you view yourself. So if I view myself as a victim, then when you break up with me, I um, feel, uh, you know, I look at myself as not good enough. I'm I'm a loser. I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty. I'm, you know, all these types of things, right? Um, and so then that would feed into how I feel. I would feel, I might feel abandoned. And so then that's reflective of how I see the world. That's the next knot of like the triangle and how I see the world. If I feel abandoned is that it's against me or it's not fair or it's lonely, or I actually think a better word is it's not inclusive. Um, It's not, it's not one of belonging. I don't belong. And so if I see the world in which I don't belong, then it's very easy to feel abandoned. And so then the next ring is um, how I see my future. Well, it's dark and dreadful and awful because I'm a, I'm, I'm a victim. The world, do, I do not belong in it. You just broke up with me. I feel abandoned. And so I'm never going to have anybody in my life. I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to have kids. I'm never going to have anybody take care of me when I get older. And so the the behaviors that I might have might be reflective of that as well. I might self-sabotage in relationships. Um, I might isolate right now, you know, and and isolate from my friend network because I don't because I'm because it's becoming self-fulfilling prophecy that I don't belong and I don't feel good. Um, so does that help? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. The order in which you described it was going from thoughts to feelings to behaviors. And then if you close the loop, going back to um, behaviors like that re, re, um, reinforce the thinking behavior and create another process. Right. Because then you're thinking because then at that point you have behaviors to look back on that say that reinforce saying, oh, yeah, I actually have proof that my thought uh, was true uh, to justify these feelings, these feelings to map the behaviors of my future. So that's kind of what we're talking about, where there, there are these three, uh, three, I guess like they can be independent, or maybe this is a question, this is more for me now. Um, mm-hmm. can, can you try to make interventions at each of those three points? Okay, because I'm like, I, I, have, a tr- I have trouble like feeling, so trying to make interventions for me at that level has always been tricky, but I'm great with action. So um, can you describe like maybe different places or applicable places to make these interventions for people? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, like, like with kids, right? Like their, their cognitive ability is not at the level as, and it, it, you know, as an adult. Right. And, and that's for various reasons. Right. So play therapy would be a really good treatment or a really good therapy for them. Um, and we're getting into therapy. So it doesn't necessarily have to be therapy. Right. But so if I don't, you know, there's, I think Chris Willard says this, he says something like, if you tell a kid to po to stand still and not move for two minutes, they literally can't do it for more than 20 seconds. 
But if you ask them to stand like a soldier, they'll do it for like twice as long as they were able to do it before. And so I think that's a really good example of like a, uh, a behavioral intervention or a play kind of intervention. Um, and that's not it. I'm, I'm maybe simplifying it, but you know, that's just a good way. And then for like the cognitive piece is, um, it's not to say that kids can't do that, but I think that's just more adaptive or more understood for adults, even though it's hard though, because I will do like, I have a whiteboard in my office and I have uh, oftentimes like kind of a thought record from a cognitive behavioral model, like a thought record on the board, which consists of um, a, like a graph, a, kind of like an Excel spreadsheet on my whiteboard. And the first is identifying the situation. And the second is identifying the emotion. And the third is identifying the sensation and then identifying the automatic negative thought and then identifying the behavior. And every time I ask somebody how they felt based on the situation, they give me a thought. And every time I ask somebody what they're thinking, they give me a feeling. And so it's really interesting. Um, but you can intervene at any level. And I think it's, it's. Um, I love how you say, like, I have a really hard time with feelings. And I think, you know, that's Brene Brown's work will say the majority of our, uh, of, of our, of people identify their emotions with three you know, feelings, happy, sad, and pissed off, <laughs> right? And so um, if we want to be resilient, we have to really include 30 feelings into our emotional vocabulary. And so I think it that's hard for every, I don't know if it's hard for everybody. I think there's some people who can feel a lot, but I do think that a lot of people have a hard time understanding the difference between their automatic thoughts, their feelings, their sensations, and how that leads into how they might react or how they can be more reflective of that and then respond better. And that would be what cognitive behavioral therapy would do. And so, you know, we could work on changing the thought process and, and saying, okay, what are the cognitive distortions that are happening right now? And, and begin to do better at identifying and saying, oh, I got black and white thinking right now. Yep, that's totally not rational. It makes sense, but it's not rational. And so we can get people exercising that and being able to change their thinking process of like, I have to go see my stepmother versus I'm choosing to go see my stepmother. Well, you know, one is from a victim mentality and one is from a creator mentality. And then we can also incorporate behavioral interventions in that and say, okay, well, um, uh, say it's the breakup situation again of like, well, let's let's jump on, let's jump this week, let's jump on Hinge, you know? And let's set up our profile and you don't need to connect with anybody. And next week, let's try to make some connections and get out there and and start creating some behavioral interventions that would in some ways be like exposure therapy. You're getting the person to expose themselves to an experience that they don't like or doesn't feel good and helping to reframe their thinking and their feeling process around that behavior. Yeah, kind of to that last point of uh, the exposure therapy piece. That's that's sort of like reintroducing somebody to the situation that could potentially recause the harm that they're trying to or recause like the the hurt that they're currently feeling. So to be able to kind of get back into that and not let fear just ruminate for a long time is probably very important. Um, an another note that you said about uh, play therapy for kids, I think that's probably one of the most effective things for adults too. Uh, oh, I, I, I think I think the fact that like adults don't play or like do anything in that sort of like childish uh just like for the fun of it aspect yeah. is like so detrimental as to a society well, like there's a 
Go ahead, sorry. I was going to say, there's this guy, Charlie Hohen, I think is his name, but he wrote an entire book about uh, play for adults. Um, he lives in Colorado also. I don't know if it was, I don't think it was him, but it was actually interesting. I think, um, and I, when we did the conference on play, I think, uh, and I think you were involved in that. I, there is a man, I think, who went to go study, I forget how it goes. And I think Brene brought it up and Brene Brown brought it up in one of her books, but they were able to attach like people who were, um, uh, I don't want to say, uh, people who have done great harm, like murderers. And they have identified that the missing link between these people who have caused great harm, you know, have murdered other people, have had mass murders or things like that, is those people of having no play in their life. And I thought, like, I don't know who it is, but it's really interesting information about the difference between, you know, a person's brain when they have no play. And so, you know, the other piece of, um, I really have to figure out what that is, but I've been so interested in it that when I send out an assessment for you to take before we start therapy together or coaching together, um, I don't, I ask about sleep, how much sleep you get. I ask about stress, all that. I also ask how much play you get. And people are like, I don't even know what this means. What are you asking me? So uh, it's it's really neat. So it's part of our work too of like incorporating play into people's life. And I think that's true for like the Gottman Institute. We'll talk about that too. And um, I have a couple right now who we just decided to play a game in the beginning of the session. And I swear it was the first session where they laughed and joked. And the first two sessions were a little like trying to figure out where we were going and identify goals and stuff like that. And it was just so serious. I was like, we're playing a game. <laughs> it was it was great. It was great intervention. It was probably such a good pattern interrupt for them as well, just to totally shift uh, their mentality about what they expected from that and and just like a totally different environment mentally to to get into for for that day or that session. Um, yeah. I love I love that you look at lifestyle factors in your initial assessment, as that's obviously something that matters to to me a lot in what we're doing at Motobio. Um, but from from a like a shifting mindset perspective, uh, just kind of like the stuff that we've been talking about is that there are those three things: uh, your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. You can sort of step in at any point of them, kind of from the the lifestyle um, factors that you're talking about. One of the things that I, I've used a lot, possibly too much as like a crutch, is using like physical activity as a way because you were talking about brain stuff before. I'm like, we're going to go here as well. Uh, physical activity is going to affect your psychology. So like the physiology can affect psychology, right? And psychology can affect the physiology. Like those those two play back and forth off of each other, right? Yeah. I mean, if you look at uh, like Dan Siegel will say, here's another triangle for you, is that the the brain really consists of like, a, well, the brain, I don't know if you want to call it the brain, but the mind, right. whatever is in this inner head, right? It's like the mind wellness. That's exactly what he says. So Dan Siegel says that wellness incorporates the mind, the brain and relationships. And so those three pieces or are what integrates into our wellness. And so the, the brain per se is like channels the, energy and the information, the mind is what makes sense or interprets um, or brings in the information. And the relationships is also um, the piece where we're like, we're, we're through relationships, 
were, ex- uh, there's a better way to say this. I'm so sorry. Might, you might need to interview Dan Siegel next. Um, but in any case, the triangle is the, bri- the brain, the mind, and relationships. And so receiving that information through relationships, um, the mind interpreting that information, and the brain then you know channeling how that information works in our body. And so, you know, if I um, fall in love with someone, I feel good when I hang out with them, right? That um, provides me with like feel good chemicals, right? And then that my brain, you know, runs that through my system. And then that's the physiological response. Um, So I don't know if that's the best example, but yeah. No, that's a, that's a great example. And I, we could probably do a two hours alone just on the differentiation between like the mind and the brain, which is like pretty fascinating that something I've kind of gotten into over the past few years. Um, but I do want to get into sort of a framework. And in our pre-call, you gave a great example of for people who've never really thought about mental health or thought about therapy or just, I guess, trying to address this in a way they would their physical health. Um, you gave a great financial comparison if you want to go into that example. Yeah. So I think of like emotional health, um, your well-being is like looking at you having an emotional budget, creating an emotional budget and figuring out like where have you been, where you're at, where do you want to be? And and so kind of using an example of your financial budget, right? Or just like for some people, it's easier to think of your physical health, right? And so you think of, um, you know, where have you been physically or where have you been financially, where are you at and where do you want to be? And so with a personal trainer, you you like map out a plan, right? With a financial advisor, you also map out a plan. And I think it's interesting to kind of compare these two to like um, personal training or financial health, because those things are so normalized for us. And where kind of the piece of like, your emotional budget or your mental hygiene is still really, I think there's evolved people out there who are like, yes, I know what you're talking about. And then there's other people who are like, emotional what? Emotional high dental hygiene? Is that what you know? And so in any case, to help people to understand their emotional budget or their emotional budgeting, kind of looking at it like financial budgeting. And so you can make a chart. You can identify like your emotional scale or your your emotional um, gains and your emotional drains is what I call it. And so there's a couple of ways that you can do this. And so you can look at like your day, your week or your month or your year and you can say, okay, what's working for me? What's not working for me? So you make an actual of like what your week looks like and then you identify an ideal of what you want your week to look like. Same with like a financial chart of like, just collecting the data and looking at your credit cards and looking at your spending and saying, okay, what do I spend? Like, what is what is my output? What is my input? What am I bringing in um, income-wise each week? And what am I expensing each week, right? So I got a mortgage, I got a car payment, I got a phone payment, et cetera, et cetera. I got this job and I got that job, right? And so you have your profit and loss statement. So if you were to substitute that and identify like literally what are all your emotional gains and what are all your emotional drains? And so an example, I don't know. What do you think an example of an emotional gain is? Um, like this conversation, like like a fun interaction with somebody. Um, I mean, so like uh, a podcast for me is sort of challenging in a very fun way in that you need to sort of steer a conversation to get to a particular outcome, but still try to have 
a natural flow of a conversation. So this is like a really fun challenge for me. And then I guess like an emotional drain on the other side would be, you know, there are just people in your life who are just, I call them like an emotional succubi. Like <laughs> you just leave the interaction and you're like, you, you've taken so much from me. You've stolen from me. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the examples I talk about is like that friend that you're always, you know, they're always calling you for help. You're giving them advice. You're there to support them. And yet nothing is ever good enough. And you're just like, wow. So that's a perfect example of emotional drain. I actually think, and this is how I like to find it, like this podcast, the way you described it would be an emotional investment because you are actually putting energy into it. That is, if you did this all day, even if you liked it, you know, which I do believe you, I think you like talking to me, right? Like, I love my work, right? And if, but if I do it for 12 hours out of the day, if I do it for eight hours out of the day, like it's also, and it, it's also a drain on my energy because it takes a lot to be able to, uh, <laughs> one, go into my brain and get all the information and output it, two, really be there with my client and hold space for them um, and help them to navigate the waters of where they're at and to like utilize all my tools to help them to work through this process. Like, there, I think I'm definitely burning calories in my room for sure. I'm not just sitting there writing notes. And so just like in this podcast, like you are being very reflective of like where we've been, where we're at and where you would like to get to because it does have to finish. And so there is an emotional expense there. <laughs> there is an emotional expense there, but there's also it's an investment because you're getting something out of it and you're getting a lot out of it. And I think like a couple examples of emotional gains are we talked about it play, right? Rest and sleep, quiet time, time with family, depends on what family we're talking about, adventure, <laughs> good food, good wine, laughter, prayer, time alone. Um, and, and I'm not necessarily a religious person, but I think like whatever it looks like to just kind of be in your own spiritual realm to like, uh, you know, just figure out, like, just connect with yourself, right? Um, being around good friends, journaling, honoring hard work, um, volunteering, um, saying no without feeling guilty. Um, I think those are good examples of emotional gains. And emotional drains would be like excessive worrying, overdosing on guilt, indecisiveness, not setting healthy boundaries, a stressful day, traveling for business, um, which could be an investment too, um, holding on to loss, the endless to-do list, um, prolonged stress, um, overcommitting, negative self-talk, uh, a friend in emotional crisis, you know, things like that. Yeah, no, those, those are great examples. Um, yeah. And kind of your, your point to, uh, spirituality or religion in there, it's like, it doesn't really matter what research you look at. It's for longevity or overall well-being of health. Like there's always going to be something in there, uh, tied to religion or i think the bigger aspect is like believing in something bigger than yourself um so however you want to lump that in but yeah those are both really good lists of emotional gains and drains and that was an interesting distinction you made between gains and investment because you're right but if i did podcasts all day i would be really drained um so yeah that was an important distinction to make yeah which i think is important because people like forget they're like oh i love that i love that i love that i can keep doing it yes 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 and then they neglect that you know, they'll say yes to everything. And I think one of the examples I give, which is, a, I think, a pretty helpful example is, and I don't know if this is an emotional investment, actually, I think it's not, but like it, living in a mountain town, right? Or 
especially in Colorado, I'm sure in Phoenix too, but it's like, let's get your mountain bike. Let's get your whatever you need to go like rock climbing and skiing and snowboarding and hiking and all those things. Right. And then they sound like they seem like really great things. But then if you have an off season, if you live in a community where there's an off season and you're not making enough money to pay your bills, but you're still paying off the five, you know, the, the big mountain bike you just bought and the skis that you just bought and all that stuff. And the worry sets in for how you're going to like pay your bills. Like, I don't know if that was an emotional gain. I think, you know, being able to think about your return on investment is really important. Um, and what you're putting in each day and what you're going to get out in the long run and kind of incorporating all the stuff from physical, financial and mental um, is really important. Yeah. Uh, Colorado, big, big gear gear city or a uh, gear state gotta have the stuff um but yeah uh walking is another one walking's free also just good pair of hiking boots um totally even if you want to hike or just walk flat i'm a big flat walker yeah um i think it was interesting the comparisons you were giving early on between a financial advisor and personal trainer i think those are much easier for people to wrap their heads around for two reasons one of which is that both of them, like you can have very binary numbers, right? Like you can put you can put a very concrete number on the amount of money you have in your bank account. Um, I, when I was a personal trainer, I could have put a very concrete number on your health, be it a VO2 max, be it a strength number, um, be it body composition numbers for people who cared about that. Um, you, you have very concrete numbers. It's the emotional stuff is more ambiguous. Um, which, which becomes harder to, to sort of nail down these actuals and ideals that you're talking about. And then I think the other thing is also the there is a stigma around it still, unfortunately, yeah. um, around mental health. Yeah. This is like the part where you don't have to sit down with a therapist to figure out what your emotional gains are or your emotional, you know, drains are. I think we inherently know that. We know that after we get a phone call, we after we get off a phone call with a friend who is the emotional drain, you know, we know the emotional drain people in our life. And I think if you look at the empowerment dynamic, if you ever get a chance to look at it or whoever's listening wants to look at it, you know, you see your drama dreaded triangle, which consists of the victim, the persecutor and the um, rescuer is like, that's kind of like the main format of that's, I think that started in the eighties, the Cartman's triangle, right? So you can stay in this red drama dreaded triangle where you continue to be the rescuer to your victim friend or whatever it is, you know what I mean? Um, or you can flip that triangle right side up and you can see them as a, you could see this person as a creator, you could see yourself as a coach and you could see yourself as a challenger. And that's how you begin to flip things from an emotional drain to an emotional gain sometimes. Is it, there is just a fact that some things are emotional drains, but I think you have to get curious with yourself. And I think this is using your mind. Um, and it doesn't matter if you sit down with a therapist, you sit down with the five people that you trust in your life, you know, that those five core people that sit on your board per se and help guide you in your life. Um, or if you sit down with a mentor or a coach or it doesn't matter, like you sit down with a pen and paper and you journal this stuff, really being conscious and curious about what works and what does not work. And asking, you know, using tools like, if I were to put $100 behind 15 minutes of social media, would I continue to do it? If I were to put $100 towards 15 minutes of talking with my friend that does not necessarily benefit me, um, that 
you know, is the emotional drain, right? Would I keep doing it? Yeah, maybe I'd spend the first 15 minutes because some of the time they are a good friend, right? But they do struggle a lot. But maybe I'm not going to invest the next 15 minutes and maybe I'm going to set a boundary, right? And it's really being clear about, you know, when we can put a dollar sign behind our energy, our emotional energy, we can become more clear on what those lines are. Because for you, an emotional investment might be an emotional drain for someone else. And actually, my mind is like, it's our mindset. We can see anything as emotional drain if we want it to be. And we can also turn it into an investment by that click of a switch, being able to say, um, being able to be curious and ask yourself what you're getting out of this. You know, like, um, gosh, I can't even think. You know, when someone when someone asks you, you know, to go for a coffee and I don't know, you're starting a new business. You started a new business. You know that, right? And like uh, you're trying to make all these connections and then all of a sudden you're making these connections and you're gaining traction. And then people are calling up, I want to meet for coffee. I want to do this. And I want to learn that from you and da, 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 da. And honestly, it it's amazing and it's awesome and you're excited about it, except you can't have coffee every day, every hour of every day of the week and get your work done. And so at a certain point, you have to be able to be curious about like, what what can I take on? What can I not take on? And how do I start creating systems that vet out this so that I can be the person I need to be? And I think we'll, you know, we'll leave it at this is like, there's always that there's always that uh, it's a very clear picture on my mind where it says, you know, the, uh, you cannot fill up other people's cups if your cup is not filled, you know, or you get on the airplane. You cannot put, you know, if it's going down, you need to put on your mask before you put on anybody else's mask. And so that's just kind of what it comes down to. It's all really intrinsic. It's inside of us mm-hmm. that we can deny our emotional health, but it's all there. We feel it all the time. The first thing I'll say is that, uh, Anyone listening to this, you probably just think that everything in the mental health and emotional emotional health space is just triangles. Everything is modeled in triangles. <laughs> I feel like it's all we've talked about today. Yes, it is all triangles. <laughs> it's good. These are very helpful heuristics, though, I think, or just like visualizations. They are for me, at least. Um, but yeah, I, I wanted to get to the point that like, so for people who are trying to shift their mindset and kind of make changes and do an audit of their life, the first thing that you've kind of been harping on is like is basically doing an audit right? Understanding what is kind of draining for you and what is an emotional gain for you. So that's that's the most important place to start because if you don't have a clear assessment of where you're starting, it's going to be really hard to make any sort of interventions or have an accurate roadmap to getting to where you want to be. So if you say that we've got like a good starting point now, you've clearly identified what is an emotional drain for you, what's an emotional gain for you, where do you have people go from there? Yeah, I call that collecting data. And I think we always need to collect data. And that's really important. But people are not very good at collecting data because they get scared by it. And that's exactly why people don't go to a financial coach or they don't go to, you know, their doctor's appointment because they just don't know, want to know what the information is. Um, And, you know, that's a podcast for another day. But let's just say (laughs) you are collecting the data. I think that's the first step. I don't think that is the first step. I think the second step is is finding mm-hmm. compassion for your actual just being your actual. And that that's hard. And I think that kind of coincides with why people don't do it in the first place because they don't want to see what they see or see what is real. And compassion is super important because, um, you know, there's two things that I always ask when people start collecting data. Is it realistic and real? Does it make sense to their life? The answer is always yes. 
because that's what compassion is, is holding space for what is. And when I can hold space for what is, I can calm my prefrontal cortex, I can allow it to come back online, and I can get more curious, and then I can ask this question, is it rational? Meaning, does it serve me going forward? Does this thought, does this feeling, does this behavior serve me? Does it serve me to have 90% of my day being an emotional drain and 10% of my day being an emotional gain? Well, no, if I was a vehicle, I wouldn't be able to get far. You know what I mean? And so um, thinking, you know, again, compassion. Second, realizing that it doesn't work and creating a map for what you would like it to be. And so that's where you kind of have like, you can, ha- you can do it in a pie chart. You can, you can do whatever you want to do. I think like a pie chart is cool. It's me. You don't have to do a pie chart. Um, I've kind of it created a, a little spreadsheet where people could just put in what their percentages are of what they do each day, like family time, me time, uh, read up, like all the things that they would like to do and put it in there. And some of it's zero, right? And some of it's, you know, higher than what they would like it to be. And they see that pie chart. And then you create another pie chart of your ideal um, and you put in the percentages of what you would like. And then you could do the same thing with like a weekly calendar of like identifying your actual calendar and then identifying the most ideal calendar that you could never achieve, to be honest. And that doesn't mean you don't go to work. Like we're not on vacation during this calendar. Like it is a normal work week, but maybe it's a four day work week and maybe it's a six hour a day work week. Um, But it still includes, you know, work, play, um, eating, friendship time, like all these important things in our life, the things that we have to do, but also the things that, you know, give us a sense of um, purpose in our life. And so how do we create our most idealistic week? And that is how we create a map. We're not going to jump. I think if you look at like James Clear work, habits are super important and you can't go from like not like sleep, sleeping six hours a day, never reading a book, never meditating working 12 hours a day to this most ideal week where you sleep nine hours, you read a book for an hour, you meditate for 10 minutes, you exercise for an hour, you go to work for, you know, seven hours and, and whatever. And you have playtime with your kid every single day. Like it's just, and we're my dog for that matter, you know, it, you're not always going to reach your ideal self, but, and it's definitely not going to happen overnight. It's being able to see what all the opportunities are and then start creating pathways and then that's the little habits that we're in, that we would make each week is like what's one tangible realistic goal that i can make can i go for a 20 minute walk and and forget about it can i go for a 10 minute walk every single morning the minute i wake up you know and if you read james clear clear's work or there's some pod, great podcast that he has one with brené brown where he says he was doing some research one guy was obese and wanted to lose weight. And his first um, step in creating a new habit was just to drive to the gym every day. He didn't even go in, just drive to the gym. And when he could figure out how to drive to the gym every single day, then his next goal was to go in. And it doesn't have to, didn't even have to use the, the stuff in the gym. It was just to get in there, right? And then the habit increased over time. And that's how you create patterns of getting to a life in which you feel good and energized by and not in which you feel drained by. Yeah. So I think the example you gave uh, of that guy driving to the gym, I, I've, I've heard iterations of that with the gym example. 
where you actually do have to go in and you're only allowed to work out for like two minutes. Yeah. Um, and then you have to leave and you have to do that for a month. And the idea is like one to build a habit, but also like if you've made the commitment to change your clothes, get dressed, drive there, actually do something for two minutes and then force yourself to leave, do that for a month. And you, you're going to very quickly realize that it actually is like an opportunity and it's not an obligation. Um, and you're going to be, you're going to be thrilled to have the opportunity to actually do it for more than two minutes. Um, yeah. But by the end of the, the how whatever arbitrary amount of time you set for yourself uh, to sort of do that. But I'm, I'm glad you got there because I wanted my next I wanted the next question to be like, what what are the actionable steps for behavioral change? And you got there by just saying that um, pick one thing. And do you suggest it be something small? Like it, you got to set yourself up for easy wins, right? Easy wins and early wins. Yeah, I mean, I, I think small is really important. I don't think like, I always say to people, like, you're not going to run the marathon tomorrow if you just signed up today. Like, there's so many steps before running the marathon. You have to first, like, research what marathon you would like to do, right? You know, you you have to sign up. You have to actually buy sneakers, you know, the right sneakers. You have to run <laughs> at one point in your life. And there's so many steps, you know, if I want to be a pilot, I can't just jump on a plane tomorrow. I need to really do some research for how, what, what does it take for me to get there? Is this realistic to my life? And then start kind of mapping it out. And I think that's with like any, anything in our life. Um, that's why collecting the data is important, um, really creating the motivation and then looking for those small little tweaks over time. And I think they just become easier. And I think it also changes, it impacts your mindset. And I think your mindset becomes more adaptive to looking for the opportunities in your life um, than, uh, you know, falling prey or kind of thinking of all the dreads in our life. Yeah, I think, I'm not sure where this concept came from. It could have been from like a James Clear book, but the idea of like anchoring behaviors where you, tr you try to, if you're going to make a change, try to make it something small, but that behavior anchors other behaviors they can build off of it. And the example you gave, which is the one that I love because I love walking, and I think walking is so important for the population at large, um, is the fact that you can anchor so much off of walking in the morning because it's going to get you out of bed. Um, there are certain things with sunlight that are going to help you anchor your circadian rhythm so you're going to sleep better. Better sleep will make it easier to get up. Um, it's, it's kind of the idea of like winning your morning. So the yeah. trying to, trying to set yourself up for success with an anchoring behavior is going to be much easier to build and stack other successful behaviors on top of that. At least that's yeah. what I found. Totally. And Addie and I have been walking almost every day in the morning, the last two weeks. <laughs> oh yeah. And, uh, to that note, dogs are kids. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, no, it was something I, I didn't, um, I didn't value enough, um, like walking, just the simplicity of it and like the, the meditative benefits of it until I got a dog. Um, yeah, I, I, that's, that's another very good anchoring behavior. Um, get a dog. I know. Right. You know, I started, I went around to the park the other day. Like there's just, you just got around crown park. And at one point I just started, well, I mean, I was trying to find Addie. So I was just walking backwards. She wasn't anywhere far. I just didn't know where she was and walking backwards felt like so good on like my knee structure like in the backs of my legs and i was like i'm just walking backwards this feels really good like it just felt 
I don't know. It felt different. It felt neat. And it and yet so simple. Yeah, uh, we're not going to get this is not like a physiotherapy uh, <laughs> podcast, but there are a ton of benefits to walking backwards. Like one of the best things people can do is drag a sled walking backwards. It fixes wow. a lot of stuff. So, yeah, wow. the fact that you felt that uh, your body was telling you the right thing. <laughs> nice. Um, what are some what are some pitfalls that you see when people are trying to make behavior change? Like just common things that it's like you see it all the time. And if people are going to try to make these changes, like here are some very obvious things maybe just to be aware of. I mean, from my mindset, I think it's like people are in reactive mode. You know, they're so they just want to change things. They just want it to be different. They they're kind of. I think it's a lack of compassion um, for where they're at. And, um, you know, I think there's. I use an example often and I don't know where I pulled this from. So whoever heard it somewhere else, let me know. But. It was like a, it's like a 300 pound woman who's trying to lose weight. And if she focuses on being 150 pounds every single day and that her not being 150 pounds isn't good enough, she ain't getting anywhere, you know, because her body physiologically is just, you know, uh, resisting change and emotionally, because emotionally it's resisting change and everything that this person does uh, never feels like it's adding up. So then they use that as a cognitive distortion, you know, emotional reasoning. So then it's not adding up and then they quit. And I think it's a really good example of where people are at. And if this woman, you know, begins to accept exactly where she's at and she begins to love herself exactly where she's at, and I love myself in this body. And, and, and that's hard to stand there on a scale when you don't like the number on it and say, I love myself. But I think that that's where some tactics of like getting in the mirror and looking at yourself and saying, well, I like myself in this dress. You know, I like my smile. I don't like my eyebrows, but let's focus on my nose. That's kind of cool. You know, and in fact, I actually hate my nose. But, <laughs> but being able to say like, I like the color of my eyes. And so I am drawing attention to, well, we're just going to focus on our eyes today because I do like my eyes and I like my smile and I'm going with that. I don't like the rest of my body but focus on what I do like, not on what I don't like. And when I can do that, I I can begin to set myself up for success and fall in line with the interventions that I'm putting in place um, that will resonate more with me. And I begin to kind of change my mindset as I also change those behaviors. Um, so that's the big picture. That's what I actually think the answer is. I don't think that really sounds tangible to all people, but I think the tangible action is to begin to accept what is. There's going to be a certain level of resistance with this, right? Because your body and your mind crave homeostasis, right? So, like, if you're trying to make a change, there is going to be this intrinsic resistance, um, I feel like. Um, Stephen Pressfield talks about this pretty eloquently in his book, The The War of Art. Um, he Like, the, the things that you need to do are usually met with resistance, and I've kind of used that as a as a sign that I'm moving in the right direction. Like if I don't feel any resistance with a, with the behavior that I'm trying to change, I'm like, I don't know if I'm actually changing something that really matters. But when I, when I feel uncomfortable and there's a certain level of resistance and I feel myself trying to procrastinate in my mind, like I feel the homeostasis trying to push back against, against this change. I have to try to remind myself like this. I think this is me actually moving in the right direction. Um, knowing that there there is a bit of resistance. I don't know if there's anything to that, but that's just what I've I've no, experienced I think, personally. 
I think that's a great, um, I think that's a great piece of information for people to kind of take hold of, of like, we get used to our comfort zones, you know, and I've always in my group work with back in the day that I was sharing with you, like we would talk about Walden's Lake, you know, and Henry David Thoreau, like, you know, he, at least what I got out of it was he didn't like the city. He went to the lake, he went to his lake house and he, you know, was able to like write again. But then he started losing connections with so many people that he wanted to get back to the city. And I think like I've always asked people like, what's your Walden? What's your Walden Lake? You know, and for a lot of people, their bed is like their Walden Lake, or at least in community mental health, a lot of people, their bed was like, you know, Walden Lake, which makes complete sense. I freaking love my bed. And it's it's a king bed. It's got a nice mattress. Ooh, it's like my favorite place to be. But I think if I'm, I don't think, I know, if you're there all day, you're like your body doesn't even like to lay in bed all day. It starts like aching, you know, it's boring. Like it, it's, it's, it's not a comfort zone. It's not a place of, a, it's not a sanctuary anymore when we stay where we are. And I think that's the resistance that we're feeling is that we're pushing against, you know, the comfort, but we're pushing into, and it's courageous, you know, it's, it's being courageous to push into this new place that will also be rewarding. And I think Huberman Lab talks about that. Um, I don't know where he talks about that, but he says it is actually a physiological resistance and irritation that we will find that we will experience in our bodies when we go to do something new. And I've learned to help my clients to recognize that that um, sensation and that response that they're having and to meet it with compassion. And also with like, yep, this is supposed to happen, you know, and not necessarily like, oh my gosh, my body doesn't even like this, you know, and blowing it out of proportion. But instead saying, well, this is this is how it is. This would only make sense that I would feel resistance. And so I feel resistance. I must be doing something right. And to stick stick with it just a little bit longer. And then we begin to reap the rewards of that new habit forming. The guy I had in the last podcast um, talked about stress quite a bit. And if you look at stress on a spectrum, like across a y-axis, um, right in the middle where stress sort of peaks at the top, that's sort of like an ideal area to be because you, oh, yeah. you know, stress is like very commonly has a negative connotation. Um, but you, stress is really just like, uh, I guess you can call it like a level of energy in your nervous system is like a poor man's way of describing it. Um, but if you don't have enough stress, um, to do anything, that's you staying in your bed all day. That's, that's being paralyzed by like a lack of a lack of desire to to move, to do anything, to be proactive. So you need a certain amount of stress to get up and to be excited and to to do the work that you're supposed to do and to see your friends and interact with people in a meaningful way. And then if you kind of continue further over, you can go so far and you can be so overstressed and be so, um, I'm not going to know the proper term for the nervous system, but be so far over there that you get paralyzed again on the opposite end of the spectrum. But yeah. so it's it's like, it's like everything else in life, right? Too much and too yeah, little is not good. Uh, it's yeah. got to be Goldilocks. I think when we're talking about the emotional bank account too, like, you know, no one knows, no one but you will know what the right answers are. And that's just your work of being curious and conscious and 
asking and, and just, just keep asking those questions. Does this work for me? Does this not work for me? Does this feel okay? Is this feeling really congruent with the action I am taking right now? Um, can I have a different feeling um, in in this action, you know, like, um, or in this new, you know, habit that I'm forming? And so curiosity is what kind of allows us to know, yep, we've gone too far. And not to like think that we've that it's over then like we got a whole life to live that just that's an example of like let's just not go that far the next time you know um and yeah yeah as you were saying that i was drinking coffee it's like over caffeinating yourself right you get too jittery and like the thing that's supposed to make you focus is now you've you've overdone it and whatever you just drag in the next day um I always eat ice cream because I love ice cream. Like, well, you can't have a whole gallon, but <laughs> I mean, you can if you want it. <laughs> Not with that attitude, Christina. Come on. All right. Um, kind of shifting gears a little bit. So I think that was super helpful to go through kind of kind of those steps. And hopefully they're very tangible. And, you know, it's it's hard laying these things out in a, in the most tangible way, because as you alluded to towards the end there saying it's nobody's going to know but you like that's. Yeah. Because it, yeah, it it's very much dependent on what your your preferences are and sort of your upbringing and everything about what makes you you is going to be determinant of of what those those gains and drains are. But I, I hopefully that was a good enough uh, like roadmap and framework for people to follow who who have never been introduced to this before and they're just kind of been trying in a very scattershot approach up yeah. until this point. Hopefully that was a little bit more tangible. Um, kind of shifting gears to more like public health policy change things like that if you if you could enact like a policy that you would you think would help people with their emotional health or mental health kind of like across the board what like what would you want to see in the, in the US population um i think that's just such a uh beautiful question and yet also not realistic but <laughs> But on the, on the beautiful part of ideals, it, Christina, these are my <laughs> ideals. I think that that if company cultures, business cultures, government cultures could incorporate a better understanding—not even a better understanding, but better mental hygiene practices within their um, business structure, then. You know, we have many policies around, and and I remember when I sat on the board of health, I said things very similarly. Is that we were met to meet, we were scheduled to meet like four or five times out of the year, and every single time that we met, we had to, you know, learn about a policy because we had to like approve of the policy or you know, figure out if it if it was on the right track, right. There was a policy that needed to be addressed, so we needed to address the policy. And like it consisted of like, what was it like? Um, what the heck was it? It was like water um uh sewage tanks. And then it was like the food, it like cafeterias, which that is important. I'm not gonna deny. Like these things are important, right? And it there was all these policies and about all different types of health. And I think you know, they, they were there for a reason, right? None of them were about mental health. And so we got so wrapped up in addressing the policies that we never talked about the mental health of our org, of our county and of our org, like of the organizations within that county. So I do think that that would be um, really important is to figure out what policies need to be put in place 
within counties and within businesses um, to hold people accountable to better mental hygiene. And I think that looks at that looks at a couple different things of like the resources that are in the community, um, making sure employees and staff know what those resources are and are utilizing them. You know, I had a fire department fire department implemented uh, a new policy for their team. They had to have two mental health uh, visits a year, had to, and they had to get signed off, which is a little awkward because the one guy who came in was just like, well, I'm here for you to sign a paper. And I was like, well, shit, let's get curious. Let's, let, you know, you want to learn a couple things, right? And so we think he walked out thinking like, I had no idea that that's what I was going to learn today. And that's really cool. And thanks for like, it, you know, instigating my curiosity in these areas um, and sleep. Uh, I think sleep is the number one thing tied to our mental health. And we do not honor our sleep the way that we need to. And so those are the things that I would impl implement. Those are fantastic answers. Um, can you give some tangible examples of what mental hygiene is? Like, I know what it is, you know what it is, uh, but can you give some examples? Because that's, to people who aren't <clears throat> very familiar with this space as it is, uh, that might be a totally new and unfamiliar term. Yeah, sure. And I think it's our mindset around these things too. Like the intention behind our actions makes everything different. I'm going to say that again. The intention behind our actions makes everything different. If I am more intentionful, that's what allows me to be mindful or practice, you know, our mental hygiene, right? If I'm running around reactionary all the time, like just reacting to things, it's not the greatest place to be. It doesn't always feel good either. And I'm not saying that we need to be mindful 100% of the time. I think play should be a little mindless, you know? Um, but I think you get my point there. Mental hygiene likes, okay, so dental hygiene you think of like dental floss, right? Like brushing your teeth. You don't always have to go to the dentist. You should go to the dentist once or twice a year. But for the most part, our dental hygiene, you know, is cleaning our teeth morning and night and flossing. And so sleep, that is mental hygiene because, and it's not just getting sleep. It's getting enough sleep that you get enough deep sleep and REM sleep. And like, if you're not getting enough deep sleep and REM sleep, your body is either too stressed or you're not sleeping long enough or check with other sleep researchers like uh, Matt Walker. He can help you to understand this stuff. Caffeinating yourself too much after two o'clock or just too much in the morning, drinking um, certain met things that we put into our body is going to keep us from being able to get into the, to the proper enough or to the amount of REM sleep that we need or deep sleep. And the deep sleep in the REM sleep is, is like the toothbrush, right? So you know, that's one thing. Meditating. Meditating, I would, I would say I have a hard time meditating. And but yet the practice of meditating is a really good mental hygiene. But play. Play is mental hygiene. Um, and like incorporating, you know, like when I go to the park with my dog, you know, are you the person or when you go to the park with your dog, are you the person on your phone responding to all the emails and text messages and taking phone calls or are you just playing with your dog and just in nature and being mindful of your five senses and what they're experiencing. And that's the difference between mental hygiene and draining your system and over flooding it with the multitude of things that happen in our life because we have, we have the capability of doing it, but it's, you know, setting boundaries. Um, eating ice cream and watching Grey's Anatomy is my mental hygiene. <laughs> but that's your intention. Yeah, I intentionally decide when I'm going to watch my Grey's Anatomy 
and eat my ice cream and then I go to bed and, you know, read a book. That's also mental hygiene. Um, spending time with friends, having a nice glass of wine with a friend and enjoying, you know, cheese and crackers. Also mental hygiene. But I'm not getting blasted, which is not mental hygiene, you know, and those are the difference. Yeah, no, I think that was a great example. Um, I did, yeah, I just re really wanted you to get to the point of kind of giving these like just life examples of being able to sort of like check in with yourself and and help yourself. That's not therapy, and that's yeah. that's one of like the most common things. Like when when I just have these casual conversations, people are like, oh, I don't go to therapy, or they go, I already go to therapy. Um, but there's there's like no addressing the the in between therapy sessions or the fact that there there is so much you can do. Um, in addition to or in lieu of therapy as well. So there's there's so many of these things that are applicable just to your everyday life. And I, I want to touch on the ice cream example because we both kind of laughed about that. But I'll give no, but it, it, it's it's a great example in that um, two nights ago I ordered ice cream on Uber Eats because which you're just paying like twice as much, by the way. <laughs> It was really self-loathing. No, but I was like, I I did not do everything I wanted to that night. I was like, but I wanted like a dopamine hit. So it was like a very reactionary order where it was not intentional, but like instead of actually doing the work that I should have done and I wanted to get done, I didn't do it, but I was like, I need the reward of getting something done. So I ordered ice cream instead. So it was like totally different intention. Yeah, this is a very perfect example of if you said, listen, I'm not going to get the rest of my work done because I need to have a pity party right now because I'm not really feeling good about what happened. And I'm going to create time and space to have my little pity party and go do what I need to do and get some ice cream. Um, and, you know, somewhat, uh, just schedule that to some degree or like have an intention on doing that. That to me, a scheduled pity party, you know, jump on your bed, get your ice cream, you know, bring all the emotions to the table and watch the heartfelt you know, TV show that you like, that I think is, that's helpful. That's rewarding. You know, can you do it for five hours? No. Can you do it, you know, can you actually do it every night? Maybe you can if you had an intention on it. But the fact is, is if you were more intentionable about your ice cream eating and like what you were doing in that moment and shifted your mindset and said, listen, I need a brain break. I need to take a break. I need to eat some ice cream and give myself a break, you wouldn't keep doing it because it was so intentional. You would know when you need to stop. Yeah, and I was, it was, it wasn't until last night, so I, I ordered it two nights ago, it wasn't until last night, I was like, why did I do that last night? And, it, <laughs> and I realized it was, it was because like, my brain was just craving some sort of like dopamine reward, and I just gave it to myself with ice cream, but like you said, very unintentionally. And I love ice cream. I'm just doing <laughs> Next time, just do it intentionally. Maybe get the ice cream in your house so you, you're not blowing your, your finances on Uber Eats. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, that seems, uh, I think that seems like an appropriate place to sort of start wrapping things up. Um, you've mentioned a lot of people um, kind of throughout this conversation. If, like, can you just sort of rattle off some other, like, good, reliable resources for, for people in this space? Yeah, um, Kristen Neff, she has a compassion inventory that I give to everybody that I work with. It's about, takes about five minutes and I encourage people to take that inventory weekly if they're not really aware of what compassion is. And even if they are, I think it's a good check. And I think like some of us know what compassion is and know how to practice it. But if you're not a compassionate 
If you know how to practice it when you're doing your best, that's awesome. It's not about when you're doing your best. It's about being able to practice compassion when you're not at your best. And that is really hard. So that's why I think that compassion inventory and her work is just really um, so, so empowering. Um, the empowerment dynamic. Uh, I think it's now called, if you Google the Center for the Empowerment Dynamic, um, that's the the creator versus the victim and the drama dreaded triangle versus or, you know, the empowerment dynamic, which is the creator, the coach and the challenger. Um, internal family systems work. That's kind of neat, but it's also I think it's still sort of new and it's it's a little uh, it's not as structured. It's more. It's more of an idea. And so you can get creative with that. And I think that's really great. I think they call it the eight C's of leadership. Um, that's a part of the internal family systems work. And that's using like curiosity, calmness, compassion, um, courageousness, like um, creativity, all these C's. And I think it's great because I've always harnessed myself to like courage and compassion and curiosity. Um, but there's more the eight C's that the internal family systems work and they use those eight C's to be able to harness yourself. And when you can feel those eight C's with yourself um, and with all the parts or with all the pieces of your life, um, that's when you're in a good place. Um, Renee Brown and her work on shame and vulnerability. Um, the Huberman Lab, I like a lot of things that he has to say, um, but I love um, Matt Walker. Matt Walker's research on um, sleep is awesome. He also, his podcasts are about 10 minutes long, maybe not even. So it's just super simple. Like it's not, you know, some of the podcasts can be really long and as fun and amazing as they are, they're not really practical for people who are not driving long hours, you know, so, or taking their dogs on long walks. Um, so the, the Matt Walker's podcast is really great. Um, I can't, think of i'm probably missing a couple important ones but that's that that's fine uh if you have more that you think of just let me know afterwards uh i'll try to link as many of the things you just listed i'll link as many of them as i can in the show notes to websites or youtube channels or wherever the most relevant place is for everyone yeah um and then where can people find you online christina great I'll link that as well. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts? I mean, we've we've covered a lot, and I really appreciate everything that we've gone over and kind of the conversation. But do you have anything you want to close out with? Yeah, I um, let me see. You know, it's funny. There was a couple quotes here that I was that I have worked on with the budgeting stuff. So I don't know if it was like relevant, but um. Mira Kirschenbaum says, just as physical energy comes from diet, exercise, and rest, emotional energy comes from the ways you take care of yourself emotionally. Living in a way that makes you feel inspired, hopeful, self-confident, playful, loving, and in touch with what you care about most. And then Daniel Goleman says, we can learn how to refill our emotional energy reservoir and that it is a renewable resource. And I think that's a really beautiful, both of them are really beautiful quotes. Um, and it's easy to misplace or not prioritize our mental health, but yet that reservoir can really fill up everything else in our life. And so I think that's why I love my work. I love connecting with people and having those connections to help them to build more curiosity and intention in their lives. And if they can build more curiosity and intention in whatever life that they have in their actual 
um, that will help them to be more resilient human beings and reach their ideal. I can't think of a more eloquent way to end end a podcast or a recording than that. Christina, thank you so much. Yeah, Parker, this was so fun. It's so great to see your face. I wish I could help you. <laughs> Soon enough, we'll get to see each other in person. Yeah, that sounds good. All right, buddy. We'll talk to you. All right, bye.